Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Glad to have you here. My name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors. Aren't these kiddos great? Isn't this fantastic? I cannot imagine a Christmas season without the kids on stage, but now that my kids are older, uh, what's actually funner to watch is you guys. Do you remember the old days with the tripods, that one dad that came two hours early and blocked everybody's view with his big camera, you know? Remember those days? About 10 years ago, my kids were singing in one of these choirs, and uh, we were in Austin, Texas, and it was a big, huge children's choir, maybe about five or 600 kids. It was, it was huge. And uh, my wife and I were looking for our kids, who our oldest, I think they were about 8 and 10 at the time, and my daughter was off to one side, and she looked so cute in her Christmas outfit, and she was singing with her whole heart. And this is the way I remembered. It's probably not true, but I think 599 kids were singing, and the one that wasn't singing was my son, right in the middle. Just angry, bent out of shape that he had to go up on stage. And I leaned over to my wife, and I said something like, um, we don't have to do this anymore. It's okay. <laughs> he doesn't have to do that anymore. Because, you know, you know, when you have kids, you got to be flexible, right? Anybody that has kids, that's worked with kids, that's been around kids, knows that they take a ton of uh, patience and flexibility and energy at times. And, and, and when we do it well, we end up really loving them with that sacrificial, unconditional love that actually we want in all our relationships. I mean, this is what makes our relationships work, right? You think about those people in your life. Sometimes we call it an oikos, which is the Greek word for extended household. And, and wanting those relationships to exhibit flexibility and patience, sacrificial, unconditional love. And there's actually an ingredient that I've learned over the years that is sort of the engine for all of that. It's sort of the power behind it. And I think it's, it's just essential to every relationship that we have. And in fact, we talk about this at Lakeside all the time. And you, you know this concept. You know this word. It's, it's a five-letter word, but it's, it's easy to talk about. It's really hard to actually live out on a consistent basis, especially if you've ever been hurt by somebody else. I mean, think back over the last year of your life and where were the challenges in your life, relationally speaking. And you think back over 2016, and, and maybe we could just think about it this way, where's the pain? Or maybe let me ask it this way, where do you need hope this Christmas season. As you look into 2017, where do you want life to be different? What, kind of, what sort of relationships do you want to be better? This concept is something called grace. And we talk about this a lot at Lakeside. I believe that, I believe that God's solution for the problem of pain and, and, and his vehicle of power to kind of get us through those dark tunnels his grace, his powerful, powerful grace. I think the writers of scriptures, they, they, they never got over this idea of grace that was, that was easy to talk about but hard to live out. And so you find it on the pages of scripture. If you'll read the scriptures from the beginning to the end, you sort of see this as a theme. It's, it's a concept that continues to come up. And, and one of the writers, Paul the Apostle, I don't think he ever got over God's grace and the possibilities of God's grace. That when somebody shows grace to somebody else, the possibilities are incredible. 
In, in Ephesians chapter 3, he writes about this. After three chapters of writing about grace, he, he sort of just breaks out in, in, these, in these couple verses. And he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And I have to tell you, I can imagine a lot. But Paul is so overcome by God's powerful grace in his life. According to his power that is at work, that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When you read the letters of Paul, you find grace everywhere. When you read about the narrative of Paul's life, which is it's found in this book in the New Testament called Acts. At least three times he's sharing his story of his encounter with Jesus and how God had changed his life, the grace of God in his life. I just don't think he ever got over it. It's something that typified him. He knew what God had done for him, that there was this amazing unmerited favor on his life. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor, even when it's undeserved. Grace. Could you use a little more grace in your life these days? Maybe you know somebody that could use grace from you these days. I don't know if you've thought about um, Christianity in a while. I mean, kind of big picture Christianity. Because there's something ironic about this idea of Christianity and grace. Because there are times throughout the last 2,000 years where the church has been known for its grace. But when I think about recent history, maybe the last 40 years, At the top of the list, when the world thinks about the church, at the top of the list, usually grace is not there. There's a lot of other things there, and maybe some of them are fair, and maybe some of them them aren't fair. But grace is usually not at the top of people's list when they think about, oh, those people that go to church. Now, not necessarily every individual, because once you get to know somebody, you kind of get to know the truth. And again, there are times in history where the church has been known for its grace. But these days, I'm not, I'm not so sure about our reputation. And it's a bit ironic because the one that we come to worship every single week here at Lakeside, the one that we want to be shaped by and, and the image that we want to be shaped into came full of grace. One of my favorite Christmas verses is found in John chapter 1. We usually don't think about it as a Christmas verse, but it certainly is. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word for dwelling is, it comes from the old Hebrew word tabernacle. It means to set up camp. It means to just be with somebody for a while. He came to dwell with us. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now on that grace-truth spectrum, I think that oftentimes followers of Jesus have gotten into little communities and they've tended to drift towards the truth side which we need as well. And sometimes you'll hear people say, you shall know the truth and the truth will will set you free. But oftentimes we forget that when Jesus spoke about truth, he wasn't primarily talking about intellectual truth. I believe in intellectual truth. 
He wasn't primarily talking about philosophical truth or even theological truth. Primarily, he was talking about himself. In John chapter 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. I think what the scriptures invite us into is a radical, transforming relationship with the living God in Jesus. And this is the truth that we need to experience. This is Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus got into arguments about this. In John chapter 5, he, he called out some of the religious leaders and he says, hey, you search the scriptures, which is a good thing to do. We do that at Lakeside all the time. I love to search the scriptures. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it's these same scriptures that testify, he says, that tell the story about me. When it all comes down to a point. That point is that relationship with Jesus. And this is Christmas. This is the grace of God poured out on each one of us. This is the unmerited favor that says God loves each and every one of you. Man, I love Christmas time, and I love watching the kiddos dress up and watching them sing and watching the babies dedicated. I know those kids are going to grow up. And they're going to face all sorts of challenges and have experiences just like all of you adults. And I think they're going to need the grace of God to hold on to. Who needs the grace of God in your life these days? Can you think of somebody that can use some Christmas cheer? I mean, some Emmanuel, God with us type of grace. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look into that in just a few minutes. And if you have your phone, you can pull up the YouVersion app. And there's some extra things on there that you can look into. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can pick one, for, uh, one up on the seat. You can keep that. You can take it home. That would, be, that would be awesome. Every once in a while, when the writers were writing the scriptures, and they're writing letters, or they're writing a biography, or they're writing um, a, a narrative telling the story of, of what was happening at the time, every once in a while, they would do something where they would summarize everything that had gone before. It's sort of like they would climb this mountain and they would look back over at what had happened and they would just boil everything down into a summary statement. And the writer of the book of Acts does that several times. He does it in Acts chapter 2 and then he does it again in Acts chapter 4. And so we're going to look at a passage today where it's kind of a summary statement of what life was like in the early church. And some of the things that we find there are some of the exact same things that we've been talking about here at Lakeside Church. We are wrapping up a series today where we've been talking for about five weeks all about generosity. And it's really the first series in a series of series where we're going to talk about different sort of key elements of what it means to be shaped by God. In fact, these crafts, as we're calling them, will shape us to have this type of life that we're calling the well-crafted life. Some people call it being a disciple. At Lakeside, sometimes we'll say passionate and productive follower of Jesus. How do we live out the well-crafted life? And so we're leaning into these different things, and they're the same things that the very first Christians were known for. 
Because these aren't only things that shape us, but they're also outcomes of living out the well-crafted life. And so we find in the book of Acts that they gathered around the scriptures, that they talked about the scriptures, that they argued about the scriptures sometimes, and they wrestled with, well, what does God have for us? What does he, what does he want for us? What has he been saying in the past that now is relevant for our present and then our future? And so the scriptures were important. We see them in almost every chapter in the book of Acts praying, praying for one another, praying for courage, all sorts of different types of prayer. One of the things that I get to do here as a part of my job at Lakeside is I I get to lead our leadership team, kind of our core group of ministry leaders, of pastors. And recently we were all together and we started to work our way through the book of Acts chapter by chapter. We only made it about halfway through, but it's remarkable how often on just about every page you find the early Christians praying. If I'm writing a letter about the culture of the early church and I do that, I'm probably trying to communicate something that prayer was critical. And so prayer is another craft. And then they were connecting to one another, connection, relationship, fellowship. We see them breaking bread with gladness in their hearts and the relationships that, that, that were forming at the time. There are thousands and thousands of people that are, are just meeting Jesus for the first time. And the population in Jerusalem is swelling because lots of people had flooded into the city for a festival. They've met Jesus, and no one wants to go home. And so they're just hanging out together, and they have to learn how to live together. And that's a challenge that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And so connection, you read through the narrative and you find people using their shape, their gifts, their talents to serve one another and to serve the world around them. And you see all this happening with people that were being generous with one another, that were being generous with the people that were watching in asking, what is this new thing called, and they didn't have a name for it at that time. They ended up calling it the way for a while, and then then they called them disciples, and they kind of called them followers of Jesus, and then finally they called them Christians, ones that were little Christ, that that were in the image of Jesus, that were following after him. And so these five crafts, as we lean into those, as we participate in those, we are transformed by them. Participation leads to transformation. And so I want to look at kind of how that was working for the early church in a passage in Acts chapter 4. And so look down all the way at the end, and here's this summary statement. It starts in verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I find that statement amazing. That God's grace was so powerful that not one person was in need. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite, a Levite was a worship leader, somebody who worked in the temple, somebody who was uh, a leader amongst the people. 
from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. His name was actually changed, or, or at least Barnabas was a nickname because of the way that he lived his life. Wouldn't it be great if somebody changed your name because of a, a positive way that you lived your life? You know, not those negative nicknames that some people call you sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Verse 37 he sold a field that he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Right at the beginning of this summary statement, kind of looking back from a mountaintop at the life of the early church, and there were probably seven to 10,000 people that were in the church at this time in Jerusalem. One of the very first things that Luke says is that they were one in heart and in mind. Probably one of the most powerful verses in the whole scripture. The church was unified? Holy moly. If there's anything I know about the church, at least in our country, it's, it's, it's usually divide, split, divide, split, argue, get mad, leave, divide, split, divide, split. But unity was so important to Jesus. In fact, in one of his last prayers, he prayed that his followers would be one. Because it's one of the ways that the world around looks in at the church and says, oh, maybe there really is something going on with these people. Maybe there really is something good there. Maybe there really is a God who loves, who can do radical things. If people can get together and be unified. It doesn't mean we agree about every little thing all the time. It doesn't mean we're not going to hurt each other's feelings. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be challenges. But what it does mean is that grace is alive and well. Because it takes grace to be able to be one in heart and in mind. Brad's been talking a lot about generosity, and he's been using this phrase, leave some behind. You know, when you, when you reap in the fields, they, they, they left something behind. This is the way of the ancient Israelites. And he says, you know, you get that paycheck, leave something behind, which is fantastic, and we, we, we need to do that. We need to be generous in those ways. But, but another type of generosity that we often don't talk about, and maybe in some ways is even harder is when we're generous in our heart and our mind towards others, when our thoughts are generous. I mean, that's a challenge sometimes because people don't always deserve to be thought well of, you know? I mean, sometimes you don't deserve the grace, but that's it. That's by definition, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, and God showers us with grace anyway. You ever have somebody in your life that just has generous thoughts towards you even when you don't deserve it? Wow, we all need people like that. I'm in ministry today because of somebody like that in my life over 20 years ago. Her name was Anne, and I was ready to quit. I was ready to throw in the towel. I had finished one year of full-time ministry. I think I was 25 or 26 years old, and it was terrible. I thought, I just need to go teach school and coach basketball. That's what I wanted to do in the first place. I don't know why I'm doing this ministry stuff. I am ready to be done. In fact, I got invited to go play basketball in Africa for a month, and I said, I am out of here. And so I went, and I was praying for a month. Should I come back and go into this ministry thing? And while I was gone, somebody 
called my wife up and was yelling at her, and she called me in Africa, and she was crying, they're yelling at me, and I'm like, what? We're out of here. Forget this stuff. And I came back, and I was ready to just be done with it, and I was in the parking lot of the church, and I was walking to my office, and before I can even get to my office, I heard the screeching of a 1993 Suburban coming around the parking lot, and this lady yelling, Sean Miller, Sean Miller. And I thought, man, I haven't even got to my office yet. What is going on? Have you ever seen moms that are late getting their kids to school in Folsom? That's the way it was. Just crazy lady, you know. Blonde hair flying everywhere, sticking her head out the window, yelling, you know. Sean Miller, Sean Miller. And I thought, oh, no. And she's almost hitting me. She comes right up to me. And I said, what's going on? What's going on? And I, 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 didn't, know, I didn't know this gal. And she said, Sean Miller, I want you to know one thing. I'm, a, I'm your biggest fan. And she actually said the words, I'm a Sean Miller fan. And we're behind you. And, man, we love that you're doing youth ministry here. And her twin boys hadn't, hadn't even gotten into my group yet. I had never even talked to this gal, Anne. But later on, she ended up joining our team. And she started to spread this culture of grace, this generosity of thought. And it was remarkable what began to happen in our student ministries. My first parent meeting as a youth pastor, three parents came. <laughs> My second one, 150 parents came. Anne was a culture changer. Her and some other parents that, that ended up joining my team. Wouldn't it be great if we all had an Anne in our life that just told you, I am your biggest fan? One of the things I, I learned in all the years of working with students was that oftentimes they would say things like, you know, God, God's kind of down on me. And I would always remind them, God's not down on you. He's your biggest fan. He's cheering you on. One of the things I learned in a couple decades of working with those kids' parents is that you guys think the same thoughts. Uh, you don't say it out loud because it's not theologically correct, right? But, but sometimes we have this feeling that God is down on us. He's not really happy about you. God is your biggest fan. He is cheering you on. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible comes from a book in the Old Testament. It's just a short book of three chapters called Zephaniah. You ever read the book of Zephaniah? It's written at a challenging time in the nation of Israel, and they had, they had done a lot of things that weren't so good. They had misbehaved, and God had, you know, given them some timeouts, so to speak. And the prophets were always warning the Israelites, it's not going to go well with you if you live life this way. Come back and live life this way. And the king at the time, I think it was probably King Josiah, and he was trying to get the, the, the Israelites to return to God. And Zephaniah was one of the prophets, and so he's saying the same thing. It's not going to go well with you. And then in chapter 3, he just turns a corner and he decides to encourage them. And I love this. In verse 17 of chapter 3, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
I just believe that every single human being on earth needs somebody to exult over them with loud singing. You all need somebody in your corner. And this is the kind of God that we have. Sometimes he quiets you with his love. And you have those moments in life. Sometimes you just need to be reminded that he is in your midst. He's not a God that created you and then went off upstairs or to some other universe and has forgotten about you. He is the God who is with us, Emmanuel. And he reaches out and he says, I have grace for you. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to shower you with that grace anyway because I'm your biggest fan. What would it look like to relate to God that way for you? What would it look like for you to relate to one another that way? Generosity of heart and of mind. Some people call it being generous in spirit. And when you have somebody like that in your life, it's a game changer. When you parent kids like that, it's a game changer for them. When you're a work colleague like that, it makes going to work a whole different ballgame. May we be a community of people that are generous in spirit towards one another and towards the world around us. A couple more things from this passage. The next verse in the, in the passage here says that with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if we read the rest of the passage, really it's all about genera- generosity in action, which is is critical. Again, it says that no one went without need, which is it's just phenomenal to me. What would it look like to live in a world where no one went without need? But sandwiched in between this generosity of thought and this generosity in action is this thing about the resurrection of Jesus. And, 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 you know, you don't have to believe any certain creed or anything. You don't have to come from any walk of life. You don't have to have a certain amount of income to be generous. You can find ways and I can find ways to be generous every single day. And I think that is beautiful. But when I look at the world today, I see a cycle of brokenness that goes on and on and on. And I think that one of the things that the writer is trying to say is that, Unless there is new life, resurrected life, from dead to alive, that cycle will continue. The brokenness goes on and the world spins madly on. Paul said it this way, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and behold, the new has come. And I think he's reminding us that generosity is precious But the ultimate act of generosity was God giving his own son to die and then to be raised from the dead for you and for me so that we could know life, so that we could know the source of life and be able to be a people of grace that go out in the world and are known as generous people, not as hypocritical people, not as judgmental people, not as legalistic people, those are all at the top of the list when you survey the world today about the church. Wouldn't it be fantastic if at the very top of the list was grace 
and that that grace was shown through all sorts of types of generosity and that new resurrected life could be passed on and on and on. This is Christmas. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for people in my oikos as well. In fact, we sort of want to, we, we want to kind of ramp this up in January. And so I want to tell you about an opportunity coming up in January. It's called Alpha. Now, Alpha is something that's been done around the world for a couple decades at least, but we're going to do Alpha right here at Lakeside. And it's just this environment that we're creating where people can come in, they could sit down in a relaxed atmosphere with friends where you can invite your friends or you can come yourself. And you can ask questions and wrestle with some of the big things of life. Like, why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What is this whole Christianity thing anyway? Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? What is that all about? Who is this Holy Spirit that some churches talk about and other churches ignore? Like, what is, what is the deal with this whole thing? And we just want to create a place where people can come and there's no wrong questions. There's no bad questions but where people can come and find the grace that we're all hungry for. Pastor Brad and Pastor John and myself are going to be teaching for about nine weeks through some of these topics. And after we teach, we're going to break into groups and and, and there'll be opportunities to sit around tables and just talk with one another. And so we want you to know about that as just a step. It's just a pathway. You know, at Lakeside, we want to be able to have these pathways where people can begin in faith where they can belong to community, where they can become more like Jesus. And that's what we really want, right? The well-crafted life is a life where we are more like the Jesus that we all respect, the Jesus that we all want to become like, the Jesus that has changed our life and can change the lives of our loved ones. And so I invite you to Pray about that and and to think about that. It's one of many different pathways that we're going to be talking about over this next six months or so. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thanks for your amazing grace. Thanks that you give us that grace when we don't deserve it because that's what grace is. And Lord, we pray that this Christmas season that you would draw us closer to yourself and Lord, we pray for our friends and family. Lord, that uh, those that have yet to encounter you as a God that is singing over them, you as a God that is their biggest fan, I pray that that would be the truth for them this Christmas season. That they would see you and that each of us here would see you in a clearer light. And God, as we continue to live as a community called Lakeside Church. I pray that we would be known for our grace that is shown through our incredible generosity. Let that be an inspiring goal for us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.